Welcome to COVID Conversations, Life in a Time of Corona. This is a podcast from the Ohio State University Center for Folklore Studies. In it, we hear from artists, scholars, and humanities professionals in Ohio in conversation with their counterparts elsewhere in the world about how their work, their thinking, and their creativity has been affected and informed by the coronavirus pandemic. I'm Rachel Hopkin. I'm a folklorist and radio producer based in Dublin, Ohio. And today, which is Friday, the 23rd of July of 2021, we're recording the 12th and final COVID conversation. And for this very special last episode, I'm joined by the creators of two journals or diaries during these pandemic times, two very special kinds of journals or diaries. They're both very different, but they both have very strongly public facing elements, which we'll find out more about in just a moment. Amanda Lewis is the founder and executive director of the Trillium Project, a small arts and culture nonprofit which serves Ohio, Kentucky, and West Virginia. She's the co-founder of Watch Me Grow Ohio, a nonprofit that provides community-based programming in sustainable agriculture, environmental awareness, and community engagement. And she's also the brain behind the Wandering Journal Project. Alejandro Alonso is a science and technology journalist and a writer of science fiction and fantasy. He lives in Buenos Aires, Argentina, and during the lockdown in his country, he created a fantastical Diario de un Cuarentenado, the diary of a quarantined man. In addition, we're joined by Rodolfo Vasquez, a Columbus, Ohio-based flute player and Spanish-English interpreter and translator, and he's going to be helping us with any language issues. Amanda, Alejandro and Rodolfo, thank you so much for joining me for this very last COVID conversation. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. Hola, ¿cómo están? Muy bien. So I'm going to get right into this and ask you to tell me about the diaries that you created, diaries or journals, whichever way you like to express it, that you created during these pandemic times, because I think a lot of people write in their journals which are for themselves and themselves alone, but you both created these public-facing journals. So tell me a little bit about what they consisted of and how you came up with the idea. Amanda, tell me about the Wandering Journal Project. So the Wandering Journal Project actually started right at the beginning of COVID. I kind of went through a period of panic because that's just how I am. I panic and then I start planning and cleaning. And I noticed that in trying to make room for books on my shelves that I had all of these unused journals, or in some cases, I had a bunch of them that just had bits and pieces that I'd started and never finished. So what I did was I went to Facebook and I just offered the journals to a small group of friends um, to see if they would have any interest in kind of sharing them, like maybe writing a little bit and dropping them off to one another just to see what everybody else was kind of going through during this time. And originally I had anticipated that maybe just a handful of people would be interested, but by the end of the day, I had more than 30 people that wanted to do it. And by the end of the week, I had more than 100 people that were interested in sharing journals with me. So it, it kind of sparked this whole wandering journal idea. And what was the idea about sharing your journal? Because I think for a lot of people, they think of a journal as being something incredibly private. And the idea of anybody else being able to see it, it's going to maybe inhibit what you're going to write. So how did you kind of negotiate that idea? What I originally thought was, you know, because a lot of my journals... They have poetry, they have sketches, they have, you know, song lists or thoughts. So at first I was very hesitant on kind of sharing them with anybody, but then like just kind of getting how I felt about what was happening in COVID, I wanted to see how other people were being affected by it also. 
And then originally the idea was just to share with some of my closest friends, but as it gained traction and as more and more people wanted to be involved, then it kind of became this whole thing like, well, I wanted people to understand how I was dealing with COVID and I wanted to understand how they were dealing with COVID. So it just kind of became this whole sharing experience. And I wasn't worried as much about my private thoughts going out, if it could in turn help somebody else identify with what I was going through and give them an opportunity to open up as well. Do you have any of your earliest entries that you might be able to share with us? Yeah, I have I have a couple of things, actually. Um, I've got some poetry that I sent out. I've got a piece that I wrote about growing up in the country I could share with you if you'd like to hear that. Sure, yeah. Do you want to read us a little bit? Okay, so this is called, I named it Callus. We washed our hands before breakfast, then put on our play clothes and headed toward the field, kicking up dandelions as we raced, sometimes stopping to pluck a honeysuckle from the vine to rest between our lips. Morning glories grew at the edge of the old dirt road, and we'd take a minute to choose our favorite before heading toward the garage. Papaw was already hard at it, elbow deep in the bowels of a semi, the sound of metal and cuss words vibrating through the giant space, making us giggle. We'd scramble into the bed of a truck, tossing out garden hose taller than I was, and sets of dirty gloves, some of which were mismatched and peeling. I never wore gloves. I was proud of the blisters and the blood, and they were always too big on my little hands anyway. I liked seeing my small hands torn open by an old wooden handle. Something about the sting of raw skin made me feel tough and important. I couldn't have been more than nine or ten years old when I took to the tobacco fields that summer, Kentucky sunshine reaching between the stalks to pinch my cheeks, turning my freckles the same dirty brown as the dried clumps of mud we tossed at one another from between the rows. Every little bit, we'd break away from the field and steal a can of Mountain Dew from the garage where calendars of topless women had been tacked to the wall so long it wasn't funny anymore. If we were lucky, we'd get to tease the rattlesnakes on our way back, poking at them with sticks until they shook and snapped at the cage. Uncle Joey would round us up and set us back to work, scraping and hacking at the ground until every stalk was clear of weeds. Worn ragged and grimy, we'd lumber out of the field in time to catch a ride back up to the house, fighting over who got to sit on the wheel humps, howling and screeching as Papa gave it the gas and cut a sharp left of the gravel driveway. We'd jump from the bed of the truck and make a run for the bathroom, scoop out a handful of the gritty goop to get our hands clean before supper. After we'd bathed and climbed into bed, and when the house would settle down and everything got quiet again, I'd look at the frayed skin of my tiny palms and smile, waiting for my new calluses to form. That's lovely. That's beautiful. It's interesting that you're talking about gloves, given that gloves also feature in the uh, diary of Alejandro. They feature quite prominently. Alejandro, what about you? Tell me about the diary that you started and how that came about. Bueno, antes que nada, quiero aclarar que yo no soy una persona de llevar ningún de diarios, o sea, jamás en la vida lo había hecho. I want to say first that I'm not the kind of person that keeps diaries in any way or shape or form. Pero al poquito tiempo de estar aislado me di cuenta que era importante llevar algún tipo de registro de lo que pasaba en la pandemia. But after a while I, I realized that it was important for me to keep something written to uh, tell people about what, what's going on with the pandemia. No quise hacerlo desde el punto de vista realista, no me parecía que fuera útil a nadie. I didn't think that it was a good idea to make it very realistic. I don't think it would help anybody. Así que decidí encauzarlo por el lado de la ficción, el humorismo 
y creo que eso también me ayudaba a mí a salir de esa claustrofobia. So I decided I wanted to focus it into the fiction and the humor, and that way uh, that would help me to alleviate some of the symptoms of the pandemia. And from the beginning, Alejandro, did you have the intention of making the diary public or did you initially think of keeping it just as a journal, a fantastical journal for yourself? How did that work out? Bueno, era parte del juego. El diario es una provocación. That was part of the game. That, that was kind of a provocation. Comenzaba siendo un diario delirante desde el principio y muchos de mis seguidores en redes sociales son amigos a quienes conozco y están en la misma línea de ser delirantes también. So it was kind of a delirium. There was a lot of friends of mine that were into doing delirium as well, and so I thought it was a good idea. I'm not sure that I'm understanding the word delirium in this context. Delirio como surrealismo, como ficción totalmente fuera de, de, de los límites, como fantasía. Yeah, it's more like ideas is surreal, not having to do with reality mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and focusing more into fantasy more mm -hmm. than anything else. But just to go back, even from the beginning, this was going to be a public diary. It was going to be something that making public. Yes, yes. La, la, pensé en su momento, como yo me sentía bien al escribirlo, alguien se podía sentir bien al, al leerlo. Yes, actually, I felt really good about writing it, and I thought maybe I will make somebody feel good. Okay, that's really interesting. So both of you had this idea that writing the diary for yourself and sharing it with others, albeit very different diaries, was going to be something really good, not just for you, but for the wider world as well, right? Así es. Yes, definitely. A pesar de que la pandemia es vista desde un punto de vista ficcional, todo en el diario habla de la pandemia, con lo cual quien lo lea dentro de un tiempo lo que va a sentir es que esa ficción de alguna manera dispara recuerdos de la pandemia, pero sin apelar a la realidad cruda. Although this is a fiction, all that I wrote was part of the pandemia and what happened with people and things. And so anybody who comes later and reads this diary will probably understand what was going on at the time, although it's fiction. Alejandro, would you be happy to read an excerpt from your diary translated into English, or would you rather read an excerpt that's already in Spanish and we can translate it? I prefer uh, you can read in, directly in English um, the version of the, the diary in English. Okay, so I'm clarifying for our listeners that uh, you sent me some excerpts from the, your diary ahead of time and I translated them from Spanish into English. And there's one in particular here that I want to feature because it goes back to this subject of gloves that we were talking about a little earlier. And it's from, it's from day nine of the quarantine. But before I read it, can you give us a little bit of context because you're talking about getting together with El Cabezón. Can you explain who El Cabezón is? El diario está lleno de personajes, algunos, algunos todos inventados. The diary is full of uh, characters and all of them are created, they're not uh, real. Algunos están dentro de la cabeza de quien escribe. El Cabezón es un personaje que está en la cabeza de quien escribe. Some of those characters come from the head of the person who's writing. The cabezón is 
a character that comes from somebody that created on their heads. So just to make clear, some of the characters in this fictional world are sort of real within the confines of this fictional world. And some of them, even within the fictional world, are within the head of the writer and the narrator. So can you tell us a little bit more about El Cabezón in specific? Lo podríamos describir como un compañero de aventuras, pero que es únicamente una cabeza flotante y con muy mal carácter. It's just a friend that shares adventures, but it floats around. So it's a floating head, right? Yes. It's a floating head only and bad, bad character, bad, bad mood. He's a bad character. He's in a perpetually bad mood. So I'm going to read this uh, translation from day nine of The Diary of a Quarantined Man. Today I got together with El Cabazón. We put on our face masks and went out to the terrace to hunt, or fish, depending on how you look at it, wild gloves. You can no longer get box gloves, the kind they sell at the drugstore, so you have to catch them wild, ideally in multiples of two. That which in the world of mammals is categorized as female and male becomes right-handed and left-handed in the fascinating biology of gloves. As a result, we have the great Noah, in inverted commas, attempting to get right and left-handed in equal numbers and thus form pairs. Separate note, it's worth remembering that stockings are hermaphrodites. So how do you hunt or fish for a glove? I use a ring of gold and diamonds as bait, since gloves are known to be attracted to such rings, poor things. They're so simple. Once the wild gloves are caught, they must be sterilized, emasculated in other words. To do this, we must first extract the reproductive organ, which, as everyone knows, is in the thumb. Then we disinfect them and classify them by size. We ended up being able to catch five large and medium-sized pairs on the terrace, but small gloves are super fast. You may wonder, why not breed gloves and then sell them since they're so rare? The reality is that this would be a business without a future now that they're importing synthetic gloves from Brazil and China, which are made out of latex. So that's the entry for day nine. And I love it so much that you've got this thing about wild gloves, the small ones being too quick to catch. How did you come up with that idea? I don't know. <laughs> So Amanda, I'm going to come back to you now. You had all of these books. What made you decide to use the notebooks, the physical notebooks, in order to share a diary when many people might think that it would have been easier just to kind of create a Google Doc or something? What attracted you to the physicality of your notebooks? For me, it's just this nostalgia about holding something in my hands, just kind of like going to the library. I still prefer to go to the library and choose a book rather than to do reading by audio, just because there's almost this romance that's involved with it. Even though it would have been easier and probably less strenuous of a task mailing out, you know, hundreds of journals. I don't know, there was just something really fun about taking something that has belonged to me for so long that I've held in my hands and, and sketched within the pages and it's traveled with me from state to state as I've moved and then being able to send that to somebody else through the mail. And I like the idea of being able to send something in the mail during COVID. A lot of people were stuck indoors during that time. So it was nice to be able to go out to the mailbox and to have a surprise waiting for you. And you didn't know what was going to be in those pages when you opened it. And you were sending these diaries out um, were you also getting them back? I have not received any of them back yet. They went everywhere. And in hindsight, if, if I'd have done a little bit more planning before I started sending them out, I would have sent fewer journals. That way they could have traveled to more people one by one. But I haven't received any yet. They are still moving around. I've got one that 
was in Hawaii. I've got, you know, them all through the States, but there's another that's overseas traveling through France right now that I hope to have back at some point. And what are the parameters? Do you say to the people, you know, fill this out for a week or two and then send it on to someone else? Yeah. So the way that it works is people would sign up on Facebook and they would, you know, PM me their mailing address and I would add them to the list. That way, when I had a journal available, I would mail it to them. And the kind of guidelines for it was you know, only keep it for maybe three or four days, definitely no longer than a week because I wanted them to travel as often as possible. And we asked that each entry was limited to two or three pages just so that we had a nice mixture of things within each of the journals. But people were more than welcome to get creative with it. So if they wanted to add in extra pages themselves within the journal, so if if they had longer entries, they were welcome to do that. Or if they wanted to edit the covers or, or anything or include photographs and anything that they wanted to do that, that they were open, you know, to have to have that. Um, we just wanted to kind of limit it on time to no longer than a week to keep them moving. You said you mailed out hundreds of journals, by the way. Is that literally true? Yes. Yes. Oh my um, goodness. I had within probably the first 20 days, I had more than 300 people join the group and sign up for it. So I actually got sponsorships, like local sponsorships from a few people that wanted to participate. So they would give me money for me to buy more journals and for me to be able to pay postage to send these out to everybody. Um, So yeah, I sent out hundreds of journals and I still have hundreds in my basement (laughs) to use for other projects. But it was a lot of fun. And, and what I noticed was, even though I haven't received any back physically, like through the Facebook page, I encourage people to, you know, use the hashtag, the Wandering Journal Project and share their own entries that way also. So if you go into the Facebook page, you can see the entries that people have completed before they shipped it off to somebody else. And were there any of those that particularly caught your attention, any of the entries on Facebook? Yeah, there were actually some really amazing ones. Um, There's a guy who I ended up finding out later that he's a brother to a girl that I went to college with, but he travels to like all over the States. He lives out of a van with his fiance. His name is Ian and he does like rock climbing and exploring at national parks. So his entries included like sketches and details of where he was at in like Utah and Wyoming and things of that nature. And then I had Another entry from a girl, and I, I forgive me, I cannot remember her name at the moment, but she is an art teacher, and her entry was really, really beautiful. It had a lot of these really beautiful colors and sketches, and then her just talking about the work that she does with students and things like that. Like, they varied a lot. Like, some people would just include, you know, like lists of music and bands that they liked. Others would include lists of things that they wanted to do. Some of them were poems, some of them were sketches, like it was just a very eclectic mix of journal entries. Were there any entries, either from yourself or from the other participants, that talked very kind of directly about the pandemic and how it was affecting them? You said that you started this project in a kind of feeling of panic about what was going on. Did you ever write about that directly in in any of the journals? I did. Yeah. One of the journals that I sent out, I kind of discussed more of what the hobbies that I'd taken up since COVID were. So there was one that I sent out that had sketches of birds that that I would see from the window in my bedroom um, because I have a bird feeder up. So one of the entries that I did was like a three page entry with different sketches of the different birds that I saw coming and going and 
kind of taking into account like the characteristics and then silly names that I would give them because I didn't know their actual names and things like that. So for me, it was a lot about um, not so much recording how COVID was affecting me like emotionally and, and mentally at that time. It was more about how it was affecting me in giving me time to slow down and notice other things going on around me. Alejandro, how did you find writing the diario affected you? Were you writing in it every day? Sí, sí, todos los días, todos los días. Yo creo que parte del, del, del tema era liberador porque yo estaba inventando un, un mundo en donde la pandemia era un, un tema más, pero no era tan cruda como en la realidad. So it was uh, kind of liberating to uh, be writing about this without being so uh, raw and so serious and such a weight over everybody that helped a lot. Yo estaba encerrado pues, en una cuarentena cuando empecé el diario desde hacía una semana, una semana que yo no salía a la calle. I started to write this uh, diary one week into the quarantine and he started to write it. And he hadn't even been out in the in the street during that week. You hadn't left the house at all. Is that right? Sí. Tengo asma y soy una persona con 51 años obesa y eso representa un riesgo de primero el riesgo de contagio y luego el riesgo de de, de no poder soportarlo. O sea que, que yo yo percibía un riesgo de muerte al al salir. I want to explain that I have asthma, I'm overweight, I'm 51 years old, so I'm, I'm taking a risk if I go outside and, and go on the streets, a risk of death. So you had already been in quarantine for a week when you started this. Tell me a little bit more about how it affected you. Bueno, eh, hay varias cosas. Eh, la primera es que necesitaba conectarme con otros y el diario fue una buena forma de hacerlo. So, several things. First, I, I wanted to connect with other people and it was a good way to connect. Y eso me permitió conectarme en términos uh, alegres, no en términos de la realidad que nos rodeaba. Cuando yo hablo del delirio, cuando yo hablo de esta ficción, esa conexión era en términos también de la ficción, del humorismo. Y entonces era mucho más relajada. So, uh, that let me connect with people in a kind of a funny, humoristic, happy way. And, uh, you know, having all this fiction going on and that helped. And how did it help the people that you were connecting with? You, you put it on Facebook, right? And also Tumblr, is that right? Facebook, Twitter y en Instagram. What kind of reactions did you get from people? Al principio la gente lo tomaba como una ficción más. Yo escribo ciencia ficción y la ficción los divertía y decía maravilloso. So at the beginning I was writing fiction like I always do and people just uh, thought it, they had fun uh, reading my uh, fiction like always. Pero luego algunos amigos este, que, que estaban en una situación de salud un poco peor que la mía me decían que era terapéutico para ellos, que ellos lo esperaban cada día. But then some of my friends who were in a dire situation more than me found it therapeutic to read what I was writing. Every night they are waiting for, for the, the entry. It's a highlight of their day. Yes. How lovely. Eso me animó a escribir más y a ser constante. Entendí que era muy importante ser constante 
eh, comprometerme con la idea. So um, I felt like um, I wanted to write more and uh, I wanted to be constant. I wanted to write for all these people that were reading my things and and I liked the idea. Alejandro, you don't live alone, right? You live with your wife. Sí, así es. What did she think of your diario? Ella era la primera lectora, incluso antes de la publicación, y a veces hacía sugerencias. She was the first reader that read what I was writing, and uh, she would make suggestions about what I was doing. También está como personaje dentro de del diario, además de de los perros, los gatos y los pangolines que tengo en el diario. So I used it as a character in, in what I was writing, besides the cats and dogs and other stuff and that I have. And the cabazón. So she's actually a character in your diary. A version of she, yes. And did she like appearing in your diary? Yes. <laughs> Both of you have spoken about how creating these diaries was a way to feel connected with people in the wider world when, especially during this lockdown phase, when we couldn't really see people in real life. Did you find that that really helped feel, really feel uh, tangibly connected? Uh, Alejandro, I'll come back to you. Sí, 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 definitivamente. Mucha de la gente que se conectaba conmigo de alguna manera me conocía en persona eh, por algún motivo. Eh, yo tengo muchos seguidores en redes sociales por, por mi trabajo de periodista y de escritor y mucha gente la he visto en persona o nos hemos hablado por teléfono. Definitely, I, I felt a lot more connected with people. There's a lot of people that already knew me and knew about my uh, uh, works as writer and um, I keep seeing them, I keep uh, talking to them and uh, writing, and uh, everybody's happy to know that I'm still around. En la distancia que teníamos, cuando ponían un like o cuando hacían algún comentario, era una forma de saber que ellos seguían ahí. Si ellos habían hecho un comentario es porque probablemente estaban bien. Every time that they were in, uh trying to, to say, I like it, you know, push that little button, say, I oh, like so the, it. Pressing the like it was, button, yeah. It was a way to, to let me know that they're still around, they're still uh, reading my stuff, and they're still uh, okay. Amanda, what about you? Did it actually help you to feel more connected to others in, a, in this difficult time? Yeah, I've always pretty much considered myself an introvert, or at least I thought that I was. So until the pandemic hit, I didn't realize just how reliant I was on socialization to to kind of feel like myself or to feel normal. So when, you know, the Wandering Journal project started, I was making these new connections at a time where I, I couldn't or didn't feel comfortable going out and, and talking to people face to face. So it, it satisfied or at least um, substituted that in-person connection. And I ended up, you know, discovering new friendships and, and learning more about people that I thought that I'd known my whole life. And yeah, it helped a lot. I think you've just made this really interesting point you know, one thinks one has one's identity and you don't realize how fluid it is and how much it depends on being around people to maintain that sense of identity, especially if you're somewhat introverted. You don't realize how relational one's existence in the world is. And that's exactly what it is. I've never been like super social. I've had a handful of the same friends my entire life and, and I don't, you know, attend a lot of big social parties and functions. So I just, I you know, had told myself that I didn't really need that in my life, that that's not the type of person I was. But then when you're restricted to no socialization, like it's it's kind of a, a big awakening to realize that, yeah, you do need that connection. At least I do to feel, you know, somewhat normal. 
Alejandro, would you describe yourself as introverted or extroverted? Yo era una persona introvertida, pero en la medida que fui desarrollando mi labor profesional a lo largo de los años como periodista y como escritor, necesité ser cada vez más extrovertido. I was introverted definitely, but with the job that I was doing as a, a newspaper man and a reporter, I needed to be more extroverted through the years. El, el, el diario me, me ponía en una situación de exposición mayor, pero era a través de un personaje ficcional. El diario me expuso como un escritor, pero en un nivel level más que nada. So you're a character, obviously, in your own diary, but it's a fictional version of yourself. Yes. But how did you deal with the pandemic as somebody who's naturally introverted? Al, al principio el aislamiento no, no era tan, tan pesado. At the beginning of being isolated wasn't too terrible, too heavy. Con, con el tiempo eh, las, las, las vías para, para expresarse y para que generalmente yo tenía el contacto humano, eh, la, la, la necesidad de, de, de expresarse con otros cara a cara, Sí, fue, fue, fue afectándome de alguna manera y ahí se fue volviendo más duro. So, with the time, I felt that uh, things got a little more, a little hard to do in terms of being social and things got a little more difficult to do. Estuve saliendo muy poco durante ocho meses. I was not going anywhere for about eight months. I did went out, but very few times. Luego tuvimos un periodo donde se relajó el tema porque había pocos contagios. And uh, there was a, a time where the pandemic was getting better, so things got a little more relaxed. Ahí fue donde terminé el diario, aproximadamente en octubre o noviembre. That's when I finished my diary in uh, October or November. Pero luego volvió la pandemia y volvimos al aislamiento y, y la cosa se volvió a hacer como antes. But uh, the pandemia came back again and things came back to what they were before. Recién hace muy hace hace poco más de dos meses recibí la primera dosis de la vacuna, con lo cual puedo tener alguna confianza en que puedo salir un poco más. About two months ago I got the first uh, shot of the vaccine, so I feel right now that I can. I can be a little more uh, trusting of what things are going on. And when you said that things got bad again, you initially stopped the diary in October or November, and then things got bad again. Did you restart the diary then? No, eh, eh, como el como diario no podía no podía volver a empezar. No, no sentía como que hubiera sido algo falso. No. I didn't uh, start the, to write again with the diary. I, I, I just felt like it was not something genuine that I wanted to do. You felt that it would be a little false to restart it. Yes. Eh, eh, fueron 237 posts. There were 237 posts that he did. Hice mi despedida la última vez. Inventé una excusa dentro de mi, del universo del diario eh, que, que hablaba del cierre del diario. I excused myself. I wrote some kind of excuse uh, in the context of the diary. Y, y luego no, no podía, no, no, no estaba bien volver atrás. And I didn't think that it was a good thing to go back. So how did you end it? 
What was your excuse for ending it within the fictional world of your diary? En aquel momento, cuando yo ter terminó el diario, el gobierno había dado por terminado lo que era la cuarentena. Entonces no se po no se podía seguir escribiendo un diario de cuarentenado. In that moment, the government in my country decided to stop the quarantine. So I decided not to write anything else because the quarantine was ending. Okay, you ended it on the basis that you couldn't write a diary of a quarantined man anymore when you weren't in quarantine. Yes. Okay, okay, got it. Amanda, what about you? Are you carrying on with the Wandering Journal project? I haven't sent any out since last December. I want to say just because I didn't want to send any more while I hadn't received any back yet. Um, I do continue to journal myself. I just have not really been sharing those journal entries. It's kind of more for myself again this time around. What's happened to them? Why are you not getting any back? I don't know. I don't, I mean, I had anticipated that I would lose, you know, a few just because I know that people get busy with regular life. And as things started opening back up in the States, I knew that that would kind of get pushed to the back burner. But I'm very surprised that I haven't received a single one yet. <laughs> and it's kind of disheartening. So I imagine like when I forget all about it at some point in a year or two years or three years down the road, I'm going to get this stray journal that comes back to my house. Because in the back of each one that I sent out, I have, you know, what it is that it's a wandering journal and I have the address stamped to send it to. So maybe someday somebody will find it randomly somewhere and decide to ship it back to me. I'm kind of holding my breath. <laughs> I hope so. But I was also struck when you were talking about what you were writing in it. So Alejandro is writing a fantastical stuff. He's not writing about the actual, the miseries really of quarantine. Yes. And it seems to me that you were also choosing not to write about so much about the miseries. You were, you were drawing these birds. Is that something you made a deliberate decision about? It's not anything that I deliberately made that decision. Um, I think I, I kind of put like some unnecessary pressure on myself as, you know, the person starting this project to make sure that the things that I initially sent out were witty or interesting just to kind of spark people to connect with it. Um, so I didn't want to really put anything out there that that wouldn't be seen as as some kind of entertainment. That's kind of why I strayed away from the more negative aspects of the journal entries. I mean, if I got some of that stuff out of the other participants, then that's great. I mean, I wanted people to participate however they felt that they needed to. But for me, it was just kind of, like I said, just an unnecessary pressure to want to make something that is interesting to people. And did anybody, at least in terms of what you saw online, did anybody actually talk very bluntly about the isolation, about any depression, any mental health issues or anything like that? No, not at all. And I don't know if maybe they put the same kind of pressure on themselves that I did, but a lot of the entries, you know, that were shared on the Facebook page, they were all very colorful and engaging and the photographs like people included selfies with their journal entries and everyone seemed to have a really positive response to their entries and what they put like it was it was all very positive and, and surprisingly so at times. I suppose that makes sense in a way because I think sometimes when you're feeling really down say if you have to go into the office and interact with someone you can't be as down as you might be feeling because you have to interact so maybe that was a way of kind of replicating that in pandemic times do you think 
I do. And I also think that a lot of it had to do with because everyone was locked up and, and dealing with this pandemic depression in their own way, that the journal gave them something to look forward to. Because I know a lot of people that were on the list, you know, they were, you know, like, I can't wait to get mine. I can't wait to get it out. Like, I'm so excited. So I think it gave them something else to focus on. Like in my case, for instance, I'm a planner. I'm constantly making plans and projects and doing this and that. So when everything kind of ground to a halt, I didn't know what to do with myself. So I think that's what I gave to a lot of the people that were participating. It gave them something to do, something to look forward to, and and to just be totally open-ended with it. Like there weren't any restrictions on what their entries could be. It was just anything that they wanted to create. That's great. And that's very similar to what Alejandro was saying. Because although Alejandro wasn't asking people to contribute to his diary, Alejandro, you were talking about how people looked forward to getting the your entry on a day-to-day basis. It gave them something to look forward to. Yes. How did people react when you, you couldn't write the quarantine diary anymore because you weren't in quarantine anymore, Alejandro? Yo creo que lo tomaron con naturalidad. Algunos me dijeron que lo iban a extrañar, pero se había cumplido un ciclo. I think it, it was natural for them to feel there was the end of the of the diary just the end of a cycle so some of them were sad that it was ending but they felt it was the natural end yeah yes 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 now you're a published fiction writer alejandro do you have plans to do anything with your diario de un cuadro later on tenía planes planes uno tiene siempre eh, lo imaginaba publicado algunos algunas entradas con fotos de la cuarentena que a lo mejor contrastaban la realidad y la ficción pero en última instancia la industria editorial de Argentina no está pasando por un buen momento hace, desde hace mucho, eh, así que no, no, no fue posible posición, ubicarlo en ningún lugar. So I had some plans that I, that I always have uh, with something published that I, they would have um, pictures of real things that would make a contrast between the fiction and what was really happening. Finally, uh, the publishing companies in Argentina are not having a very easy time, so it was impossible to to publish it. Or at least so far. Maybe maybe that will change as we go forward. Where can people find this diary at the moment? Es un hashtag que se puede buscar en las redes sociales y van apareciendo algunas entradas al azar. It's a hashtag that that you can find in social media. And it's it's a bit kind of um hit and miss as to what you find. It doesn't come out in an obvious chronological order, right? Exacto. Aparecen a veces de forma desordenada y, y no está mal que así sea, no, porque el, el, son, son pastillas eh, lo que yo iba escribiendo. So it's, uh, they come in not in order. They just come all disorganized, but the, he said that there's pastillas that he has. Fragments. Yes, that's what I found. I remember when I was first looking for it, I couldn't find any kind of like, you know, day one, day two, day three. It was all kind of here and there, but you did actually send me the full document, but it's hashtag diario de un cuarentenado. And I'll put that in the notes which accompany this podcast. I think I've asked most of the things that I meant to ask during this conversation. Is there anything that you would like to say to each other or anything that you would like to say that I haven't given you the chance to? Sí, sí, yo tengo preguntas para Amanda porque su, su proyecto me llenó de preguntas. 
So he's got lots of questions for you, Amanda. Uh, Alejandro has got lots of questions. He says your project's making him full of questions. But Alejandro, <laughs> right. I'm afraid I'm going to have to limit you to just one, just for the sake of time. Can you just ask one? Tal vez Rodolfo me, me, me ayude, yo la hago en español. Claro, claro. ¿Cómo recibió ella en su rutina la, la pandemia? Es decir, ¿qué, ¿cuál fue el cambio más drástico que tuvo que hacer? Alejandro wants to know what was the biggest change you felt during the pandemia, the biggest uh, challenge you had. For me, it was just, it was learning how to slow down and kind of readjust because I'm a high strung person by nature. And I, when I have too much time to just kind of watch and live my life without planning, it kind of sends me into almost a panic because I don't know what to do with myself when I'm not so busy that I'm crazy. That was probably the hardest thing for me was being able to adjust from someone who's go, go, go all the time to someone who's kind of quietly reflecting and starting to pay attention. Okay. I certainly identify with that for sure. Yeah. <laughs> Amanda, do you have any questions for Alejandro? Um, yeah. The diary entries that I've read so far are They're so fantastic, and, and I find myself cracking up while I'm reading them. So I just wanted to know, like, even though it's not necessarily pandemic-related, but do you have plans to continue with these kind of daily entries going forward? Like, are you, are you, is it, are you just, like, book-focused, or, or are you going to do diary entries in the future? Because I would love to, to read those as well. Yo no, no, no pensé si seguir con el diario, si, si, si iba a seguir con el diario pero sí me parece que puedo extraer el estilo del diario y emplearlo en algún otro tipo de ficción. So I, I really didn't think about uh, writing more on the diary, but maybe the style of the diary and what I wrote can be used for something else. Alejandro, I, when I was reading the diary, which like Amanda, I just love, um, and it's so inventive and funny and... I wish I'd been reading it during our quarantine. I would have had something to look forward to on a daily basis then too. But do you relate it to the magical realist tradition of writing in South America or in Argentina particularly? Is it something that you see as part of a lineage? Compararme con un García Márquez o, o cualquier otro escritor que haya hecho realismo mágico a lo grande, creo que es muy, muy pretencioso. So to compare myself to uh, Garcia Marquez or somebody like that, it's pretentious of me to to do to get <laughs> to that point. Pero pero los he leído y han influenciado en lo que yo hago. But I have uh, read uh, their stuff and and they have influence on what I have written. A lo que se suma que en algún punto. Argentina es un país surrealista en muchos aspectos. And uh, I, I can say that Argentina is a surrealistic country and, and, and a lot of uh, different sides. Eh, a veces pasan aquí cosas que no pasan en otros lados del mundo y uno no las puede creer eh, y parece que viviéramos en, un, en una realidad eh, un poco distinta, un poco más mágica para bien o para mal. Things happen in this country that they don't have it anywhere else. And um, I think uh, things, uh, you have to go th with the flow, even though uh, it's very hard to explain and it doesn't happen anywhere and, and could be good or could be bad. Okay, so your style of fiction suits the country that you live in. Yes. 
<laughs> well, we're getting close to um, time now, but before we end, I wanted to find out a little bit more about Rodolfo, who has been joining us to help with the translation. Rodolfo, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? I'm a musician. I um, have been in Columbus for about a uh, little over 25 years. Uh, it's my second home. I was born in Mexico City and I uh, lived there for 33 years. So I am kind of have one foot is there and one foot is here. The good thing is that I have had uh, such a wonderful experiences here in, in Ohio, especially with artists, and I have the opportunity to work with wonderful people uh, professionally. And um, we have a saying in my country, if you are green, if you, like you're a parrot, parrots are green, you are green everywhere. You go to Europe and you're a parrot, and you go to Asia, you're a parrot. doesn't matter where you are, you're always going to be you. And if you are a good writer or musician or uh, uh, whatever, if you are good, you're going to be successful anywhere. So I have always thought about it, and I always believe that, and um, that has helped me a lot. And can you tell us a little bit about your experience during COVID? First of all, since I do a lot of uh, interpreting medical, interpreting hospitals and um, medical offices and things, I was one of the first ones who got COVID in April last year. And it wasn't terribly bad. I never got to the point that I thought I was going to die. I spent one night in the hospital. And it wasn't because of COVID, it was because I was, uh, I had panic attacks and uh, I had a panic attack that wasn't letting up and I thought it was COVID, but I got to the hospital and they said, no, it's not COVID, it's you're having a panic attack. So I spent the night in the hospital and they gave me some sedatives and I was fine. So did you have the experience of not being able to breathe properly and you thought it was COVID? Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, I started to feel like I wasn't, I didn't have enough air or something. And then I thought I better drive to the hospital because maybe I'm, I'm having a problem here. But uh, locally, uh, it was over in 10 days. And um, not the panic attack. You're talking about the COVID, right? <laughs> COVID, <laughs> yeah. COVID was over. And Although uh, I have had uh, side effects that lasted, for example, a headaches took a little longer to go away. And um, the, the, the problem with tasting food and my tongue had this texture, really weird texture. You know, if I eat a banana or something, it tasted like, I don't know what. So you're a flute player. How did you find your relationship with music? changing during and after COVID or your own experience of COVID? Did it have a big impact? Yeah, it did. Uh, basically, what I do, I play music for people. And that's the gift that I have, uh, that I can give to people. So I couldn't do that. Everything that I had planned, concerts and uh, gigs and things like that, all were, were canceled. One thing that was good, though, is that I had all the time in the world to practice. So I did a lot of practice, but there's so much practice you can do. And then you missed uh, the essential mission of the musician, which is to play in front of people. And that was a very tough to deal with. Locally, I, I work in this uh, church, and they didn't mind me playing every single Sunday. And I'm happy to say nobody got sick. Nobody, everybody was fine. 
So, well, you were still having in-person church services even during the hard lockdown, right? But uh, we—it was a big sanctuary, so we had a lot of distance between okay, each other, okay. and uh, oh, everybody was using masks except me when I played. Okay, but then, so yeah, as yeah. as soon as I finish uh, performing, I would put my mask on. But uh, like I said, nobody got sick, nobody uh, felt like it was a danger, so it was great. Gosh, that wonderful. must have been a lifeline to you and to all of the yeah, other people there right, during that right, time. Right. Did you feel some fear about you? You're you're a flute player, and well, you need your lungs. You need yeah. to expel air. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I do. Um, let's put it this way: I I'm not a very fearful guy. I take chances. <laughs> And sometimes um, I'm stupid enough to do things that I'm not supposed to do. And at the time that I got sick, I didn't thought I didn't think it was terribly serious or something. But then after I got better, everybody started dying around me. So, oh, no. but um, I was lucky. But you did have that panic attack, so you must yeah. have been. A little bit of well, yeah, yeah. It was a night that I, I didn't really know what was going right. on, and I had to to sit down and think about it. <laughs> well, I'm so glad that you're able to play again and um, play again even outside the church. I know you've got some concerts lined up for later this summer of 2021, and I'll post some links so that people can find out about those in the notes which accompany this podcast, as well as to some performances that you have on YouTube. And I'll also post links to the other projects that have been discussed in this podcast from Alejandra Alonso, the Diario de un Cuarentenado, and Amanda Lewis's Wandering Journal project. Amanda, Alejandro, and Rodolfo, thank you so much for taking part in this final COVID conversation. Fue un placer. Pleasure for me too. Yes, thank you so much for having us. As I said, this is the very last COVID conversation. It's the 12th and final one of the series. And you can find out about all the other episodes and all the contributors to this project by visiting go.osu.edu forward slash COVID conversations. COVID Conversations Life in a Time of Corona is a production of the Center for Folklore Studies at The Ohio State University. It's funded by the university's Global Arts and Humanities Discovery Theme Grant Initiative. Just so many people have been instrumental in making this series happen, and I can't name them all here, even in the last episode, but I would like to express special thanks to Elena Faulis, Paul Kottheimer, Cassie Patterson, and Nick Spitulski. I'm Rachel Hopkin, and thank you so much for listening. Mm-hmm.